She's been raised to trust no one. And remember, my daughter, trust no one. She's been trained in the art of deadly. Ah! You're strangling my neck to death! But nothing is more dangerous than a double agent's midlife crisis. I never wanted to kill for a living. I only wanted to open a bakery. The spy who wanted to be a baker. You see blood on my hands? I see raspberry filling. I want to break bread, not bones. I want to choke icing bags onto cakes. Then Svetlana read a book called Building a Story Brand that helped her clarify her message so customers would listen. This book has set me free. Anybody can grow business using these amazing techniques. And now she owns the finest bakery in Vladivostok. Another pierogi, please? You love them, don't you? <laughs> because they are the best. Yeah, they're good. I wouldn't necessarily call them the best. What great thing will happen to you after reading Building a Story Brand? Available October 10th. Next customer, please. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. It's good to see you. Good to see you as well. We have a terrific interview today with Molly Fletcher. I love Molly. She's fantastic. Her book is fantastic. It's called Fearless at Work, and it's all about taking risks and being willing to do crazy things. Yeah. Which brings up so much. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so much of the way I used to be. Really? <laughs> I'm a risk taker now, but more strategically. Interesting. Yeah. I failed a few times. Yeah. I lost all my money. Did you know this? I did. I lost every dime yeah. after Blue Like Jazz was on the New York Times bestseller, made millions of dollars, lost it all yeah. on a bad investment. Yep. That will teach you to be... <laughs> a little less <laughs> risky. <laughs> a little yeah. more strategic. Yeah. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Yeah. I'm not complaining at all. It's one of the best things that ever happened to me. But in interviewing Molly and reading her book, it made me wonder whether I need to let up some of the guard. Get back into the game a little bit. Yeah. We do this thing uh, every year. Well, we don't do it so much anymore because Bob's lodge burned down in British Columbia. Bob Goff has this lodge in British Columbia. But every year we would do this retreat. And actually, I think you were supposed to go up at the lodge for now. now. (laughs) Yeah, so he's rebuilding it. It's going to be great. But uh, we used to go up there, and the, the rule is when you go to Bob's lodge is... You can't say no. <laughs> you just can't, you know, and we just kind of, it's a light sort of seating of that mentality when yeah. we bring people up there. I was like, hey, listen, it's going to go great for you if you just don't say no. <laughs> and you got to take a water taxi to get there. Yeah. Even before you hit the dock, I can't share because people will know, but we do something crazy and it's like, you can't, you actually can't, you can't say no. <laughs> you, gotta, you, gotta say yeah. <laughs> you can't say no. It begins this transition. I slowly watch people over the course of three days, we're not there for very long, mm-hmm. come alive. Brian Canlis, who partners in running the Canlis restaurant up in Seattle, yeah. he was on one of the trips. Uh-huh. And he and Shauna Nequist uh-huh. made this agreement that uh, they would say yes for one year. Yeah. If anybody asked them to do anything that wasn't immoral or illegal, they were yeah. just going to say yes. Yes. And Brian was, I'm like, where did that take you? There's a lot on his shoulders. There's a lot to lose when you're running that kind of restaurant. Yep. And he just did it for a year. He did it. And so I said, where did that take you? And he said, well, one day I showed up at work 
And I think he was waiting at a table or something. And three hours later, he was skydiving. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, I have to leave work. That's I have literally. Like, if you make that promise, there's certain people you just can't tell. You, know what I mean? can't like, talk to you can't tell people, hey, I'm well, saying yes to everything. I don't think he actually said it in just the natural course of conversation. It, you know, it was like, yeah. you know, what's a fun thing that you've done since you've been here? And so we actually went skydiving. It's the most great thing. You, you should do it go? sometime. <laughs> yeah, do you want to go? Yes. Well, when could you do it? Uh, anytime you say, yeah. I have to do it. And he, he found himself skydiving. Oh, my God. He also, I believe, uh, that is the reason he is now married. Really? With a baby. Because <laughs> yeah, he went skydiving? Both. The marriage and the baby were yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought it was skydiving. I'm like, what kind of skydiving is he doing? Skydiving. <laughs> <laughs> the idea, though, is that we could all probably stand to be a little more Fearless. You are a fearless guy. I try to be, yeah. I think of you as fearless. Yeah, I think it's not something that I come by naturally. No. I'm actually a pretty timid person, but... But in a group, if somebody wants you to dance, you dance. I had to build that muscle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, dance is nothing. But I really well, do think... fearlessness. I wouldn't... I mean, that's... <laughs> you asked me to dance in public. Yeah. That's going to be... I went to a prison once to teach StoryBrand. I uh -huh. kid you not. 150 violent criminals in one room. Yeah. No guards. Me, the instructor of the class, who was also a civilian, and 150 violent prisoners. And the instructor of the class turned to me and said, hey, this is going to be uncomfortable, but everybody who guest teaches, we play a hip-hop song, and you have to dance in front of these Seriously? people. I'm not kidding. Oh, my god. I had to do it. <laughs> I'm wanting to be the expert. Uh-huh. And I've got to hip-hop dance in front of 150, and they hooped and hollered. <laughs> and the whole idea was, if you're not willing to be an equal, yeah, you can't be here. Yep. And it was mm -hmm. one of the coolest things in the world. Anyway, but yeah. it was horrible. My mom, growing up, had a phrase that she would always say to us. Like, if we were at the mall, and my mom would say, we need to walk this way. And meaning like we need to go over here, which she would actually do like a silly walk, like Monty Python silly walk, like yeah, walk yeah. this way. And it would always embarrass us. <laughs> and she would say WWNSTPA. And that means we will never see these people again. <laughs> WWNSTPA. And so whenever I am in a situation that I know, like when I live through this, it's I'm going to have a great story. It's going to be fun. It may be embarrassing in this moment. I honestly stop and go, WWNSTPA. We will never see these people again. <laughs> and it works. And it works. And that has allowed me to, you know, when I was in the Missy Elliott video and I'm dancing in front of people with my belly out, I literally just had to stop and go, WWNSTPA. Yes, this is going to be on MTV. But yes, it's going to be on YouTube but forever. Like with <laughs> the people in the room, I don't know these people. I'm never going to see Missy Elliott again. WWNSTPA. I got asked to sing at a funeral one time, and it was a funeral for a friend who is African American. And everybody who got up and sang, I was the official singer, and everybody who got up to eulogize the person broke into song and seemed like they were related to Whitney Houston. Like just oh, was no. unbelievable. And then I was the special music. And <laughs> it was not special compared to what these people were doing. And I just got up and I said, this was her wish. She wanted me to sing this. She didn't want any of you guys and to sing. And the reality is WWNSTPA. A lot of these people I'm never going to see again. And I just need to sing from my heart. And it ended up being a very special moment. And her family was really grateful. But there's so many times where 
you're afraid, oh, what are people going to think if this fails? Yeah. And you know what? A lot of people, you are going to see again. <laughs> you are going <laughs> to see people again. But I think once you start doing that, you take risks and you start doing that and you realize, you know what? That didn't feel comfortable, but I survived. And Molly and talks about this. in the interview and the book that it is a muscle. Yeah. And you build the muscle of fearlessness. And if you don't build it, it's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you friendships. It's going to cost you intimacy. Yeah. There's things we I have to do. People think fearlessness is the lack of fear that you don't have fear. And that's not what fearlessness is. Fearlessness is moving forward with wisdom in light of fear. You see that there's a situation that could be very scary. And you don't just jump in blindly, but with wisdom and experience, you move forward in light of fear, not in spite of it. Do you take baby steps? This is why I ask. Yeah. Because interviewing Molly. Yeah. Betsy mm -hmm. is like her greatest fear in the world is being humiliated in public. Mm. I don't care that much because WWE you know, and STPA. Yeah, a little bit of that. But <laughs> when I think about taking risks, I think like business risks and yeah. social risks. Those the little like embarrassing. If you if you have any comedy gene at all, you know you have to test your material. Yeah. And most of it's <laughs> <Yeah>. bad. <laughs> so Betsy and I have been taking baby steps in terms of being fearless. And here's where we're starting. Uh -huh. When we go to a restaurant, you get kind of points. And we used to say, I'll give you $5 every time, but because we share money, it doesn't matter. But you get points every time while the waiter is taking your order, or while you're having a conversation with the waiter, that you can meow. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally like, <laughs> I'll take the black and blue burger and uh, um, I'll do the sweet potato fries. <laughs> you have to just say, he's got to be able to hear it. Does Betsy do it? She doesn't. She but does I, not. No, but I do. <laughs> Which is almost more embarrassing for her, well, I would for imagine. Her, yeah. yeah, it is an act of fearlessness for her to sit. <laughs> to be in public because with you. Because yes. with my wife, there's a look I get, and it means this is over. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't. And I know. And I, you they, like, this again. is not a joke. Like, I would press anybody else's buttons, but I'm <laughs> yeah. not pressing her buttons. But anyway, the point is yeah. you can practice fearlessness, right? And. Yeah. You know, what does this mean to ask for a raise, to renegotiate a contract, to go up to a client and just say, I think you should be doing business with us? Yeah. In work, fearlessness is huge. Yep. And if you want to get a promotion or if you want to get that big account, there has to be some element of fearlessness. Yeah. So what I love about this interview is it's going to inspire us to be fearless. She gives us practical steps that we can take in order to be more fearless, and we understand why it's actually important. And I yeah. think everybody listening is going to get something for their business and they're going to get something for their personal life yeah. too. And hopefully, I envision a world where many people meow <laughs> at restaurants while they're... Because it's, it matters. And say WWNSTPA. <laughs> <laughs> and dance in Missy Elliott videos with their belly hanging out. Mm -hmm. That is what matters. Mm. And Molly's going to teach us to do yes. it. Amen. <laughs> Here's my interview with Molly Fletcher. Molly, welcome. It's awesome to be with you. We're backstage at a conference uh, called LeaderCast. Yeah. 100,000 leaders. Are you nervous? You're going to give a keynote tomorrow. I'm excited. You're speaking too, <laughs> big time. Are you nervous? I'm speaking. Hopefully, I don't have to go after you. <laughs> uh, no, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm looking forward to it. This event is amazing. Well, folks know who you are, and you've got this new book out called Fearless at Work. And obviously, if you've negotiated a half a billion dollars worth of, what do you call it, talent? <laughs> <laughs> you Contracts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Contracts. Touchdowns and yeah, that's right. all that stuff. You know what you're doing. And you got to be a little bit fearless to be able to pull that off. Yeah. So tell me what's in it for us if we are fearless at work. And what's it costing us to not be fearless? Yeah, yeah, that's an awesome question. You know, 
what I did was for 20 years when I represented these guys, I was beside them, even though I was negotiating their contracts and handling their marketing deals and all those kinds of things. Obviously, you become very close to these athletes. Yeah, and so I began, they become friends and even like family. Absolutely, members, yeah. yeah. I mean, you're at their weddings. When their kids are born, I mean, you're there. And that's what makes the relationships great. And so I began to kind of study what was the difference between the guys that made it and the guys that didn't. Are you talking about agents or actual athletes? athletes. So oh, you athletes. started learning from them. What, that's what I yeah. mean, yeah. Like as an agent, even though I was in many ways quarterbacking their careers and supporting the process right. for them, whether it was negotiating their contracts or their marketing, when you're beside these guys that much, you learn so much. I mean, you yeah. can't help but hopefully learn from I mean, these are guys that are pitching game seven of a World Series, you right. know, or they're standing over a putt on a Sunday to win a tour event, right? Yeah. So I began to sort of say, how did they get there? How did they prepare for that moment when they're standing over a putt to win the Masters? Mm. How did they prepare for the moment when they were getting ready to throw Game 7 of World Series? What was the difference? And what I realized is they feel fear, just like all of us as business people do, but they lean into it. They don't lean away from it. Hmm. So they step right into those scary, fearful moments every single day, year after year, day after day. And inside of those, they fail some. They have success some, and it strengthens their ability to prepare for the big moments. Hmm. And so what's in it for people to me is that there's 1,440 minutes a day. Yeah. 1,440 minutes a day. And so to me, fearlessness is something that happens over time, right? Like a guy- You got to practice. It's a, it's a totally. muscle. You can, it's totally a muscle. Yeah. Yeah, you're stealing my content from this man. <laughs> <laughs> it's practice. totally it's totally a muscle and you can strengthen it by practicing it. And I think it's about so doing So is it, it true though that there are people who are risk averse and people who are not or is it just that some people just aren't practiced at taking risks? You know, we all have a different risk tolerance for sure. Yeah. But I think what we've got to do is sort of get the awareness as it relates to where we are with yeah. that and sort of say what is it that's blocking me because what I believe is that all of us are going to have things that we're worried about and that we're scared of. But the best, lean into them and step into those. You know, it's scary to start a business, right? Yeah. yeah. But the mindset of the best athletes I saw was that they told themselves that they were going to win. They told themselves that they were going to have success. They believed it before anything ever. Correct. Yeah. Right. So it's about, to your brand, it's about the story they told themselves. Right. Inside, and the role they play inside that story. Totally. And they believed that they would win. They believed that they would have success. So, you know, a lot of times athletes will say, I don't have enough confidence. Well, you got to tell yourself that you're going to get there and that sometimes things confidence comes before execution. I think sometimes you got to tell yourself enough to believe so that you can execute. You know, my wife and I are wired very differently. And sometimes she'll go, they're paying you what for a day? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, they're paying, you know, yeah. this is what hundred thousand. She goes, I, hope, I yeah. couldn't even get out of the car. if oh, they were, And, and I yeah. thought, I kind of like the adrenaline. Yeah, like, totally. You got to show up and you got to. And you got to deliver. Yeah, or whatever. Well, it's like, well, that's what I love about speaking. And you know this, right? You step out on the stage and there's a, you know, a thousand people, two thousand, a hundred thousand, whatever, staring at you going, all right, lady, I'm busy. So what do you got for me? (laughs) Like, make this good. You're taking up my time. And I appreciate, I love it. Only one time I was about to deliver a, a talk at this really prestigious university and I'm walking across the campus at night, you know, ignorantly cocky. And then I walk in front of the library and I'm like, Oh, these people are actually really smart. <laughs> oh, really? I'm about to bomb. <laughs> <laughs> I could have wet my pants right there. Oh but I went my in and gosh! Did it anyway. But you but, did it. Yeah, most of the time I'm just too stupid to realize I'm not. Supposed well, to be that here. yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, what, yeah. do you see an athlete? <laughs> do you see this in them? And you go, that guy, that girl has it. This kind of fearlessness, 
Is that as important as athletic talent? You're summing up value here, even though these are friends. There's yeah. value on the table. I think talent is never enough. I mean, talent is obviously incredibly important, but you've got to have, to me, talent plus discipline, talent plus purpose, yeah, talent plus resiliency, right? talent plus the right mindset. And so all of them have tremendous talent. There's no doubt about it. I think the ones that made it, the ones that really made it, were the ones that had talent plus fearlessness. Really? They had a little bit it's more. It's that important. I think it's imperative because when you look at us, even as business people, the thing that blocks most of us from most anything in our lives as it relates to just personal success, business success, is fear. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the one common thing that I think holds us all back. And that was what sort of drove me to want to write this book is so, you know, how do we inspire people to take advantage of the moments each and every day? Step right? into to, it. To step in and ask. You know, sometimes you leave a meeting and you're like, Oh man, I should have maybe asked that question, but I didn't really know if I should. <laughs> yeah. And I maybe and, and you you were maybe too nervous to ask the question. Tell me the first time or a time when you put a number on the table and just inside you knew that's a ballsy move. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember doing? Oh that? my gosh! Well, yeah, and I wrote a book about negotiation because I think yeah. that there's a process around it, and right. yeah, absolutely. But I think in order to set the number down, like you said, I mean, in order to sort of ask for what you want. I think you have had to set the stage. So I was negotiating actually Jeff Francoeur's contract who hmm. played for the Atlanta Braves for years. He was on, you know, the cover of Sports Illustrated as the natural. That's what people called him, wow. right? So I mean, this guy was just the man, right? I mean, he was recruited for Clemson to play football. He signed with the Braves. You know, superstar stud, gonna make a hundred million dollars playing baseball. So he comes out and he's coming up through the organization. In the first three years, you're arbitration eligible, and then you become a free agent. And Jeff was a guy that believed in himself. He was a guy that was... Yeah, he knew. He knew, I, I can do this. And so Jeff kind of said, look, I think I can make more money by working the system and just doing one-year deals. I don't want to lock into a multi-year deal. So Jeff gave me the green light, right, to be a little fearless for him. And so he was an arbitration-eligible guy. And so we began to kind of negotiate a little bit. And then it just sort of stalled. And then it would pick back up and it would stall again. And then the night before we're going to leave for arbitration, it was in Phoenix that year. And we had made it very clear to the GM of the Braves what we wanted. And Jeff was totally on board. Everybody was connected. And so we were going to get on an airplane the next day and go to arbitration, which in my opinion, truthfully, as an agent is a bit, I don't like going to arbitration because I think it's sort of failure because you haven't been able to get it done, right? Mm, And so now you've got to put your athlete in a room with the team that's then going to be you know, saying things that aren't pretty great about the guy. I mean, that's their role in that process yeah, is to kind of crush the athlete. Totally. Yeah. So I didn't really like the fact that we were going to put Jeff in that position, but Jeff was confident. He wanted to go and all that stuff. So 11 o'clock at night, my phone rings the night before we're leaving. And, you know, we've got our flights book. We're ready to go. And it was the general manager of the Braves. And he was like, hey, Molly, are you still at that same number? Because you're planning on flying there tomorrow. Are you still there? Like he was just like, you guys are just (laughs) insane, right? Yeah. And pretty confidently I said, Frank, yeah, we're still there. And I just paused. And my husband was laying there. And my husband, after like a minute of total silence on the phone, right? (laughs) Right? Which is super weird. I mean, a minute on the phone with nobody saying anything. And my husband goes. And he's playing the same game because he's not saying anything either. Yeah, totally. He's just going to sit there. And so my husband, wait, so my husband looks at me and goes, say something, you know? And I said, no, 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 we're not saying anything. So about another 30 seconds goes by. And Frank Wren goes, all right, you got a deal. 
No. Yeah. I love that. He story. goes, <laughs> I'm faxing over the term sheet now. So I hang up. I call Jeff, wake him up at 1130 at night or whatever. Yeah. And I said, dude, we're not going to Phoenix, man. We got a deal. So to me in negotiation, yeah, you got to throw that number out. And then you've got to have the courage to pause. You know, yeah. I think sometimes a business. And it's got to be real value. I mean, you can't, you totally. know, you're not going to be in business long if you Correct. do all that Absolutely. nonsense. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It's got to be real value. But the okay, pause so is key, man. Now, now we're key. motivated, Molly. Are we want to be ready? fearless at work. Okay, okay, so teach us how, right? So you've got some ideas in your book, Fearless at Work, but give us some tips. What's the first thing we need to do? So, I mean, I think the first thing you need to do is have a really clear purpose. I think you know, one of the stories I love to tell is that if, if I lined up two buildings downtown, right, and I took two buildings and they were like 500 feet high, let's say, and they're 250 feet apart, and I put a plank across the two buildings, okay? And the plank, let's say it's like, you know, a foot wide, an inch and a half thick, right? So when you walk across the plank, like it might dip a little in the middle, but, you know, not a ton, right? So if I ask you to walk across that plank for $500,000, you know, usually when I do this with an audience, you know, maybe three or four people's hands raise. And then you say $5 million and a couple more go up. And then you say, what if the people you love the most in your life mm-hmm. were on the other side of that plank? Would you walk? And everybody raises their hand because when we have a purpose behind something that we're going to do in our lives, we'll do it. In other words, when we know that that is something that is intrinsic to what's most important to us, we'll do it. So to me, that example brings to life how powerful our purpose can be in the way that we behave. Is that a process where you sit down? I remember recently I made a little health and fitness goal. Which I'm, okay. you know, I make them all the time. Yeah, I know. No but breakfast. I actually sat down. And <laughs> I actually <laughs> sat down and went, okay, by this date, I will have lost this, and I just kind of, I incorporated some more meaning into it. You know, okay. like I'll feel great at this wedding you know, we're yeah. going to next yeah. week, and yeah. all this kind of stuff, and it worked. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a second, I've set a million goals, but I've never actually sat down. Is that what you're talking about when, like, when you're like trying to find you got to have a level why. of meaning to your to what you're doing. So what's your process for Yeah, so I think sometimes that? to do that, you've got to go to your point the way you did it, right? You've got to go to what you want. You've got to go to the end. So sometimes for our purpose in life, I mean, that's a big deal, right? So yeah. I think you've almost got to go to the end of your life and say, what do I want people to say about me? What legacy do I want to leave? What's most important hmm. to me when I look back, if I could stand there at 100 and look back at my life, what would I want people to say about me? What would I want to have been the driver behind my work, my relationships, my decisions. So I took a lot of time and said, what do I want that to be for me personally? And, you know, it takes a lot of thinking and a lot of work and introspection and et cetera. But I think when you can align your purpose with your work, you can do pretty amazing things. So Tom Izzo was a client of mine forever, the head Mm -hmm. men's basketball coach at Michigan State. And Tom said, you know, look, my purpose, yeah, you know, I've had an incredible career and we've hung banners and we've had success, but now my purpose and my driver is about making the dreams come true for the guys that I teach, for mm-hmm. the guys that I coach. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes what I find is most people's purpose is beyond themselves. And I think the key to the purpose too is realizing that it's not about getting there, it's about who you become as a process of the chase, of the journey, Yeah. right? So. The decisions you make, the work you do, the relationships you build. To me, your purpose can become something that you filter all your decisions through. You know, all the things that you, you know, whether it's a job promotion or an opportunity or starting a business or not, is it aligned with your purpose? When we can align our work with our purpose, 
then I think we're really living at, yeah. you know, kind of inside of what is our gift, hopefully, right? Yeah. I would think it increases the stakes, which makes you more fearless. Oh, you my know, gosh. Nobody wants to somebody at their funeral to say, you know, Don was really afraid. That's what I remember. Right. <laughs> I remember That's so true. how afraid he was. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah, I love was, that. He was willing, right? Yeah, Because yeah, yeah. he loved us or whatever. You know, yeah. you, you want them yeah. to say. I'm curious yeah. what you decided when you said, you know, you did the process and you figured out some of your purpose. Can you summarize that for Yeah. Me? So I spent a lot of time on it and I decided, you know, I got really clear that my purpose is to lead, inspire, and connect with courage and optimism. Wow. Well, you're doing that. One time, I mean, so... Your listeners may appreciate this. You know, I was I travel, I speak a lot, and I was on the road, and I called my husband. We have three kids, 14 and 13-year-old twins, and I uh-huh. called my husband, and he's terrific. And I'm like, hey, honey, how you doing? And he was like, I mean, good. I mean, you know, and then, you know, kind of easing the real estate, but a deal had kind of gone south, and, you know, yeah. the kids were crazy. And it was just, and he goes, you know, it's just, and I went to my purpose inside of that conversation. So instead of like, well, honey, do you want me to cancel the speech and come home, you good. I mean, what, which I would never do. But I mean, mm-hmm. I went to my purpose, which my role in this now is how can I inspire and support him in this moment with yeah. optimism? Yeah. So I think it changes the way you approach conversations. It changes the way you approach moments. It becomes just this bottleneck of a filter for everything. It's a, for me, I did it about two and a half years ago and it was really a game changer. Yeah. Oh, so to me board. to be fearless, it starts with purpose. Absolutely. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Molly Fletcher in just a moment. Well, welcome to another segment of Marketing Mythbusters. Here to bust more marketing myths is Kula Callahan. Kula, welcome to the show. Thanks, Don. Glad to be here. What is today's myth? Today's myth is this. People think you're pushy if you ask them to buy your product. Well, of course they do. Of they course don't. you're pushy. If you're asking people to buy things, you're just offensive. I don't want to be around you. Absolutely not, Don. Hmm. How many products have you sold by not asking anybody to buy it? Well, now that you mention it, <laughs> not very many. Yeah, so when I'm on the phone with StoryBrand alumni helping them wire from their websites, a lot of times they push back when I say, put a direct call to action here. Put a direct call to action and here. That, and direct call to action is like, buy now. Absolutely. Schedule an yep. appointment. Let's get this done. It's your marry me button. Marry me. And they feel like they're being too pushy. And my response is simply this. Do you want to sell your product or service? Do you believe in what you have? And do you believe that mm. will help solve someone's problems and yep. make their life better? If you do, ask them to engage with you. It doesn't feel cheesy or manipulative or inauthentic for you to ask somebody to buy your product or service if it really, truly does help make their life better. Cool. I think you've changed my mind. Oh, great. I, think we I love need it when to that happens. More direct in our calls to action. Here's what's really happening. When you say, I don't want to bother these people. I just want to loosely mention that we've got this thing and maybe they can go somewhere to get it. Or here's what's awful. Here's how great our product is and you're going to love it and we have a great company and nowhere on the website can you figure out how to do business with them. There's just like a phone number. Yep. How much money are they losing per year by not asking people to buy? Millions, probably. And they're coming off as one passive aggressive. Totally. Right? I don't want to tell you that I want you to buy my product, but that's actually (laughs) what I want. So I'm going to... It's a puzzle that I want you to figure out. Or... Two, they come off like they don't believe in their product. They come off like this. We've got this great thing and we've really put a lot into it. And I don't know if you would be willing to like buy it because it would make us feel really good about ourselves. Yeah, might it might not, but it's really not about the product or you, it's about me. (laughs) Nobody's interested. Absolutely not. But when you say, Hey, you need this thing. This yep. thing is going to help you. It's going to give you peace of mind. It's going to make you have a really great looking yard. It's going to make your vegetable grow bigger. <laughs> it's going to decrease your cholesterol. It's going to unclog your toilets. You don't yeah. want clogged toilets. <laughs> 
you got to do this. So yeah, direct, strong calls to action are about confidence, competence, and the true ability to solve a problem. Absolutely. That's what they communicate. Yep. And you need them. I was on the phone today with a company out of Illinois. They sell wood-fired pizzas. And I was looking at Wood-fired pizzas or wood-fired pizza ovens? The actual pizzas? Pizza. Yeah, they're a pizza shop. That solves Um, a lot of problems. It does. And their website speaks specifically to people in the catering space. So people looking Ah. to have them come cater. And only one place on their website did they ask people to schedule their free tasting. I'm like, not only are Crazy people dying nuts. for free pizza, but if you never ask someone to come taste the pizza, no one is ever going to hire You're you to cater their event. You're not bothering anybody by offering free pizzas. Absolutely. So oh, she, I, I was like, you literally need this button everywhere. And so I told her several places to include it. And she says, oh, like literally everywhere. I'm yeah. like, yes, Repeated. Everywhere. And here's you know just some other tips to keep it going. If you have a cluttered top right space on your website, in the top right space on your website, if it's cluttered with contact, frequently asked questions, job inquiries, pictures of my cat, <laughs> you are diluting the buy now button. Yep. If you go to our websites, we may have two buttons at the most in the top right, but usually one of them is really bright in a different color. It's the obvious button to press. We need to make it obvious that we want a relationship with this customer and for them to take a risk, because it is a risk, yes. for them to take a risk, but the more confidently that we ask them to take that risk on buying our products, the more they believe, we believe, we can solve their problem. Yep, that's exactly right. All right. Well, I think you can't actually be too pushy in your sales techniques. None of us want to be the guy in the infomercial at midnight on television <laughs> sawing a mattress in half saying he's lost his mind and he's cutting prices in half. I have never, in the thousands and thousands and thousands of companies that come through StoryBrand, I've never met that guy. I haven't either. The men and women I meet are doing the opposite. Yes. They're being too soft, and nobody really believes that they believe in their product. So clarify your direct calls to action. Make it obvious you want people to buy. Drive strong to the hoop, (laughs) as we say. (laughs) Kula, thanks for being on with another episode of Marketing Mythbusters. Thank you. All right. Well, if you want more practical tips, more things that you should be doing on your website and your email, go to 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. It's a free resource that we have for you. 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. You'll learn a lot more than just calling your customer to action. You'll learn about a bunch of other things that you need to do on your websites, and they're all equally valuable. 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. Again, the book is Fearless at Work by Molly Fletcher, talking about what happens when you live afraid. And of course, nothing happens when you live afraid. What happens when you are fearless? So first, identify a clear purpose. Absolutely. What's next? And then I think you've got to get really curious about what's possible. So I think you've got to spend time in that space saying, what's really possible for me? And and what does success look like for me and the people around me? And lean into the moments that make us feel a little bit scared. So one of the stories I tell in my book is about John Smoltz, actually. And mm-hmm. Smoltz, he's yeah. a guy that I represented forever, and he's just a terrific human being. I mean, yeah. he obviously was a really special pitcher, but he's a great, great, great guy. But Smoltz, he was a guy that had a starter for years. I mean, and that was John's role, and he was a heck of a starter, and he's a special pitcher. And then the organization leaned, asked us and, and asked us to talk to John. They said, look, would he close? Would he step into the role of closer? Which is a really big change for a starting pitcher. And John at the time, you know, as I'm having this conversation with the organization, I'm literally looking at the bone spurs from his elbow that are on my desk as a paperweight, right? So this guy's arm, I mean, he's had a ton of cortisone shots and whatever. It's a wreck. So this is a big shift. 
Long story short, John stepped into the role of closer the following season and led the National League in saves. Wow. And so John was curious about what was possible, and he anchored that decision. It would have been the end of his career, probably, if he didn't close or close Um, to it. No, I mean, I think he could have continued to pitch as a starter, but what John's purpose was to be a great teammate, Mm -hmm. to support Bobby, the manager, and to serve his 25 other guys on the roster. And so... For John, it was an easy decision because he anchored it against his why, mm. which was to be a great teammate and to support Bobby in any way he could. And so Bobby wanted him to step into that role, so John did it. Well. So he stepped into something that could have been pretty embarrassing, right? I mean, he could have gotten out there and it could have not worked. It could have shortened his career. It could have length- But at the end of the day, the gift was I actually think it made his career longer hmm. because he probably over that period of time threw less pitches, mm-hmm. right? And so he, he probably saved his arm a little bit. Do you sit with players maybe new to signing to you and help them imagine what their careers can be? I'm thinking of kid come just out of college. Do you find that some of them imagine greatness and some of them don't? But can people be coached into it? I think some of them, you know, when they were 14 years old, they dreamed about being drafted and, you know, into Major League Baseball, for example. Or, And so I always used to say to young guys, you know, you, you think you're a pretty good-looking dude, right? They'd be sitting in the office and I'd say, you think you're a pretty good-looking dude? And they'd be like, why is this 40-year-old lady asking me if I'm good-looking, you know? And I was like, yeah, no, you know, you are. I said, but you put 15 million bucks in your back pocket and you're really hot. So I would say to guys, look, this is exciting and this is a big deal. And you are a first round draft pick and you're signing for a whole bunch of money and you've got a heck of a platform now and an unbelievable opportunity, but we haven't done anything yet. Right. I mean, you've got to get through this minor league system. We've got to get to arbitration and free agency. And then, then let's celebrate, right? Let's go toast to champagne when you're at an all-star game. Right. Right. So most of the guys that had gotten there, I think, believed in in their ability to execute. I think it was the ones, though, that were continually curious about learning how to do what they did even better. Because these are the guys that were the best at what they did in their community. So then they get dropped into a fishbowl of a bunch of guys that are as good as them or better. Right. Now you got to make sure that you're listening to the people around you that can make you better. That's one of the things I think fearless people do is they stay really curious about how to get better. There's they, a humility there. Totally. There's yeah. a humility. There's a an appropriate amount of vulnerability hmm. so that they can ask the right questions to people around them and get better and, and be open to feedback. Because the one thing for people to know, too, is that when you're fearless, you're going to fail. I mean, that's part of the process. And creating a strong tolerance for failure, to me, is important. Yeah, you say be resilient. That's No one of the question. Point. Is, is that yeah. what you mean? Like, when you fail, get back up. Absolutely. I mean, you've got to recover. One of the guys that I had the chance to spend some time with is Butch Harmon, who told me that the difference between some of the best golfers in the world was their ability to recover quickly. How do you recover quickly when you screw up? Well, you've got to tell yourself the right things, right? So if a golfer bogeys a hole, he doesn't step onto the next hole and say, geez, man, I hope I don't bogey this one, right? right? The golfer steps onto the next hole and says to himself, you got this, right? I'm going to birdie this and I'm going to get back in the lead. If a baseball player walks a guy, he doesn't step back out there and go, oh, man, I think if I walk two guys, I mean, I'm going to get pulled, right? He says, I'm going to sit the next guy down. So it's a mindset. So, you know, you lose a deal, you use, lose a piece of business. You can't tell yourself, oh, my gosh, I mean, maybe this whole thing's unraveling. Maybe right. this is over. Yeah. Maybe I really can't sell. You've got to tell yourself, I can and I belong here and I'll execute. So it's a mindset. It's self-talk. Yeah. It's the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah. I, I interviewed Ben Crane. Absolutely. done well. And I said, what were you thinking? It was some big putty had to make. And, you know, what were you thinking? And he said, Don, I was thinking nothing. Oh, <laughs> and he said, uh-huh. that's the goal. Yeah, that's That's when I right. knew I could sink the putt. Nothing yeah. was in my head. 
Yeah. So it's just me. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, that yeah. takes practice. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But he was present. That's the other thing I think fearless people have to do is be present yeah. in the moments. Because to me, fearlessness, you know when you see you know, an athlete make a decision in a moment that you're like, how did he, in that moment with two seconds yeah. left, like how did he do that? Where did that come from? Because fearlessness is in the moment. It's right now, right? Like yeah. the past is, man, I wish I would have dot, 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 right? The future's like, one day I'll spend more time with my family. One day I'll make enough money that I can retire. One day I'll, to me, when we're fearless, we're right here, right now. Making it happen. Totally. Take ownership is another aspect of being fearless. What do you mean by taking ownership? Well, I think we've got to be accountable from the inside out. So in other words, you know, we're going to make mistakes in our lives. No question, we're human. And leaning into those moments and saying, you know what, what can I learn from this? How can I look from inside of me and say, what could I have done differently? And how could I take that knowledge, that information, and allow it to serve me in a way better when I find myself in a different situation? Hmm. So I think we've got to own There's a self-awareness. those moments. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you've got to own them, and then you've got to use that information. I mean, I messed up a ton as an agent. I mean, I made mistakes, right? And there was questions sometimes I wouldn't ask guys because I don't know that I wanted the answers. Hmm. And I look back and I go, wow, I, you know, I wish I would have asked those tough questions because even with a guy like Smoltz, I mean, John was a guy who you know, pitched, and then he took lesser deals to go to other markets. You know, I wish I would have had the courage to say, what's wrong with just hanging up the spikes yeah. and playing golf, man. It's okay. You've had an amazing career. Let's let it go. Yeah. You know, because you think, I'm not supposed to do that or he's not ready for this kind of a conversation. Yeah. So I think ownership is having the courage to ask the tough questions sometimes. There are personality types that, and a lot of them, very type A driven people who simply cannot process their mistakes. They can't do it. Yeah. And it does cost them something mm -hmm. sometimes, but it always costs everybody around them. Yeah, That's what I've noticed right. about those kinds of leaders. Is that what you mean by take ownership of this, this ability to say, okay, this seems to be a trend here. I keep making the yeah. same mistake. I need to actually sit and process why I'm doing this. I love the way you just said that. I think that couldn't be more true because it's maybe not. And eventually, to me, that model isn't sustainable. No. Right? Like if you're not as a leader listening to people around you that – can give you feedback. I mean, and, and that's one of the challenges. You know, as an agent, my role was to be one of the few people to tell them the truth because everybody I, else is about all that. up there. Beep. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know that you can't, you know, you can't name names, but a lot of these guys succeed because they're unbelievably driven. Type A believe they're, you know, they can't fail. Something in them can't fail. Right. Have you ever had to sit down with somebody and say, hey, listen, this is actually you. This problem is you. This problem is not your team. Yeah, this problem is not have. your coach. This problem is not your dad. This problem is you. Was that a tough conversation? Very and difficult. I've had that happen before. I mean, I've had to sit down once. I had to sit down with a broadcaster who wasn't calling as many games as he wanted to, and he was really frustrated about it. Huh. And there was a website about him that talked about how just literally like a whole bunch of people had come together and sort of built this little community where they were talking about how the best way to watch a game was with him on mute. Oh, my God. And when he was sort of, sort of grinding me on getting him more games, I had to really sit down and go, hey, man, look, you know, this is what they are looking at, and this is why you're not getting more games. Yeah. But I think what guys want and I think what people want is authenticity. Mm -hmm. And I think they want you to just be real with them. I mean, a lot of my coaches would just say, look, just tell me the truth, right? Like if I'm the fourth guy in line for that job, not the first guy, just tell me. Right. Don't BS me. 
And that's one of the things I loved, really, about most of the guys I worked with is they wanted you to shoot straight with them because so many people in the world didn't. Mm. And you've earned it, too. I mean, you've earned their friendship. They know your motives. Yeah. They know your heart. So yeah. you've, you've also earned the right to say, hey, you're being a jerk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's anchored against trust, right? And I think, yeah. you know, whether you're a coach or a player or whatever, great leaders build great trust with the people around them. And so then that accountability and that connection and those tough conversations are there and they're all coming from a place of love, right? So that they're effective conversations. Mm-hmm. They work. Well, finally, be bold. Yeah. What do you mean by be bold? Well, I mean, I think you, you've got to— What's the difference between being fearless and being bold? Well, they're pretty similar. That's a great point, man. <laughs> to me, being bold is having the courage to— You know, the analogy for me was I played tennis at Michigan State, and I had this coach, and I was like 17 years old, and I was getting ready to you know, go to college and play. And I'm 17, and he goes, okay, now, Molly, this is what I want to do. I want you to stand on the baseline, and behind you— I mean, he's talking to me like I'm five, you know, are sharks— and they're all these sharks. And if you step behind the baseline, those sharks will eat you up. So what I need you to do is make sure you're stepping into every ball and taking it on the rise and taking it early. Let's give your opponent less time to react. So there I was at 17, and that analogy played into my life from the perspective that you got to step into the things you want. you got to go for it, right? And that translated to sort of me leaving and coming down to Atlanta to try to find a job in sports and all this stuff. But I think that's what being bold is. It's stepping in and going for what you want instead of waiting for it to come to you. I love that. I love that. I'm, I'm literally racking my brain on how I can apply that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope so. Molly, this has been a, a wonderful interview. Very oh, inspirational. The book is Fearless at Work by Molly Fletcher. It's available anywhere you buy books, but she's got a lot of books out. I want to have you back on to talk about negotiation. I would love point, that. Because you that got would, a book about negotiating. Let's do it. I have a feeling you got some stories. I got all kinds of stories for you, man. But I need to read your book so I can learn about story brand. Yeah. Oh, please. Yeah. I'm on we'll, it. we'll give you a copy. Probably inappropriate, but I am. I'm, I'm an amateur tennis player. You think I got a shot? You, can you negotiate something for me? <laughs> we talk off the air. Yeah, we'll talk off the air. We will just figure out what you need. Great. I got My wife back. did a summer tennis tournament. We lost every match, but I'm pretty sure it's because of her. It's, oh, it's 100% got her fault. It's 100% her fault. <laughs> Maybe I should There's your a book. risk there playing hey, doubles with your bold. wife. You said be That's bold. That's true. I want a That's professional true. tennis career That's at true. 45. <laughs> this has been awesome. It's awesome. Thank you. All right, there you go. Yeah. I'm inspired to be fearless. She's amazing. <laughs> she is really wonderful. We recorded another interview while we were in Atlanta with her about negotiation skills. Yeah. And I'm not sure when our producer is going to drop that into the back of a podcast. It won't be the main interview on a podcast. We're going to tag it onto another podcast. But you want to keep listening to the Building Story Brand podcast because her stuff, when she pauses for 90 yes. seconds, <laughs> <laughs> oh. you can just feel the tension. I felt sick to my stomach listening to that. And I know that if I was in that Fearless. moment. Yes. Oh, I love it. Anybody else, including me, would have jumped in and, <laughs> oh, man, lots to learn. <laughs> From Molly Fletcher. Well, listen, next week's interview is no less fantastic. This was a really surprising interview for me because it's David Horsager, and he wrote the book called The Trust Edge. <laughs> David believes that everything comes down to trust, that if a customer trusts your brand, they'll do business with you. If your employees trust your leadership, they will follow you to the ends of the earth. But it's all about trust, and if you break trust, you're up a creek. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, that makes sense. And, you know, and then he's got these steps on building trust. 
And I figured I could probably ride them on a napkin before the interview because uh-huh. I knew what they were, yeah. and I didn't. Uh-huh. And every one of those steps was a surprise to me. I mean, not all of them, but yeah. that was like, okay, that one makes it. But that one, I didn't know about that. He would say that if you break trust, the apology means very little. Oh, that there's something that you have to do with the apology that will actually build the trust. The apology doesn't build the trust. Yeah, Something else builds the trust. I liked him so much that I actually invited him to Nashville. We actually did this interview in Phoenix, and he's from Minnesota. But I invited him to Nashville to meet with a group of guys who some of them had really broken trust Mm. in their leadership. And he was fantastic that night. You know, one of the things he said is you just have to be consistent. You have to get back in the saddle and say, I'm going to do this, and then you have to do it. And you have to do it enough times where people go, okay, I trust that guy now. Yeah, Rebuilding trust. It's a fantastic interview. We're going to feature the entire interview next week. But right now, I just wanted you to hear a little clip just to get you excited about this interview with David Horsager. Here it is. I trust you if I believe you care beyond yourself. This is why today attorneys, politicians, some of the lowest trusted in our country in the index. But this is why the most trusted in the world today is mom. Hmm. Because she has an intent. Generally, there's crazies on daytime TV, but... Generally, she has intent. She'll stay up late with that science project. She'll put salve in that ugly wound. She'll whatever, because she has intent beyond herself. And we trust someone if we believe you have intent beyond yourself. All right, be sure to tune in next week, especially, you know, trust is everything. If you want to be a more trustworthy person, you're going to have a better marriage. You're going to have a better team. You're going to have a better company. And you're going to have better relationships with your customers. You're going to make more money. All of it, I agree with David. It comes down to trust. His book is called The Trust Edge if you want to read it before next week's podcast. But if not, you can capture the entire interview next week. All right, well, you know this podcast exists to help you grow your business, and that means revenue, right? We want your revenue to grow. We want customers, more customers engaged in your brand. One of the best ways that you can do that is to get my new book, Building a Story Brand. The book comes out October 10th. However, if you pre-order the book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble and forward your receipt to book at storybrand.com, that's book at storybrand.com, you'll get a paperback right away. That's an advanced reader's copy normally reserved for the New York Times, USA Today for press, right? But we printed enough that we can get you a copy. So pre-order the book, forward your receipt. They'll email you a receipt. Just forward it to book at storybrand.com, and I'll get you a copy in the mail right away. Plus, you'll get an extra book, the hardback, on October 10th. So you'll get a present now, and you'll get a surprise present in the fall. But the reason you want to buy the book is because we've got to do something to grow our business. And the more that you invest in growing your business, the better it's going to do. I think this is a terrific way to do that, to understand the story brand framework and clarify your message so more customers will listen. Again, buy the book, forward the receipt to book at storybrand.com. We'll get a book in the mail right away, and you'll get one again in October. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's music on Spotify or iTunes. And thanks as always for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business.